0: Good to see you all this morning glad that uh, that you're here and it's good to be here on a on a day when we have our whole families together so young and old alike you know to see the kids in the room is great and so you know parents avail yourselves the opportunity to explain some of these things later um things like lord's supper and the worship and all those things but glad that they can be in here and, and be a part of this with us and i was thinking about this this morning trying to think of a of a way to initiate this message, a way to sort of begin it with a concept that might might resonate with us. And I wonder, just thinking, not thinking aloud, but just thinking, how many of us, how many of you have some things in your, in your home that you keep them around, but they're just for looks? I mean, you, they don't do anything, but you keep them anyway. You've got some, right? You know, I was thinking about this like with my grandparents. My, my grandparents, my grandfather had a had an old shotgun, double-barrel shotgun they kept above the mantle. He would never let us shoot it because he says, no, I'm afraid something might happen to you. That's just for looks. And then they had a TV. Some of you probably still have one of these. It was a big console TV. It was the size of a dresser, but the screen was about this big. You guys know what I'm talking about? You have to explain that to your kids. That was a big screen. And I remember when the TV finally wreathed its last, and I guess he had gotten tired of replacing the tubes in it and whatnot, it then became a table, and it holds stuff on it, but it's just for looks. And some of you do the same thing. You collect cameras that don't work or typewriters you don't use or china that you don't eat off of. You, you feel me? know what I'm saying? And it dawned on me this, when it comes to church life, we probably have some things around that are just for looks. That somehow over the years, the weight of their importance... The purpose behind them, the the value in doing them, has been somewhat lost to us. So in a sense, not intentionally, hopefully more unwittingly, we go through the motions of some of these things. And you can kind of trace the similarities between what we do now and what once was, But if you dig down very deeply at all, you'll find it's not exactly the same now, is it? And we've slowly substituted things for what used to be. Or we've got variations of things that are a little different than they used to be. And over time, it just deviates, just gets off course a little bit. Now, I was thinking about this text in Acts chapter 2. We prayed about it this morning in our prayer time in the sanctuary. Tim alluded to it and shared a good portion of it during our offering time and it dawned on me that it may be possible no probably likely that we've settled for too little that we've accepted an inferior substitute and maybe because it's all we've really ever known and it's all that we've ever done and it's culturally normal and it's denominationally typical and all those things we we're fine with it but I want to challenge you with the real thing And I hope in so doing that today that I'm going to create, or no, God will, His Word will, create a bit of dissatisfaction in us with anything less than the real thing, less than His intentions for us. And as He creates that dissatisfaction, it'll be replaced with hunger and thirst for the real thing and a desire to pursue it. So let's pray about that this morning. Father, more than anything else, for my sake, for the sake of those in this room today, really and for the sake of the people that we have contact with, relationships with, that we're going to interact with in the days to come, Father, I pray that we would have an encounter with you, not just with each other, not just with the activities and ordinances of worship, but with you, with God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, which you've poured out on us, through your word, which you have given to us, because of Jesus, our King, that we would have a fresh encounter with you. And God, when we do, I cannot imagine that there will not be a part of us, or better yet, a part of all of us that wants more, desires more, seeks more, won't be satisfied until we have more. We want what you want for us. We want what you have given. We want the real thing and no substitutes. So, Father, reveal yourself and your intentions through your word and through your spirit today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. After fumbling around with a lot of wonky titles, I finally settled on this one and changed it at the last minute that this is a church. And that's my theme for this morning from Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is a church. And Tim already said how the church was birthed. It's a supernatural birth. It's not man-made. You know, I, I get so, oh, I just get so weary, you know, of all the commentary people make about the church. You know, I, you know, I, I love God. I'm a spiritual person, but I, I don't have much use for man-made religion, organizational religion, you know, man-designed, all that. No, no, no. God birthed the church. He created the entity, and he gave it its purpose and mission, and he gave it its leadership and direction, and... He tells us how to worship and what to do when we're together and how to care for one another and how to love one another. And this is what it is. And this is the beginning. So in a a second, I'm going to have a section of the message that says this is a prototype. Now, this is the model. And everything that's come since then to be faithful to what God intends ought to reflect this. And the farther we are away from this, the farther we are away from God's intent for the church. Let's look at Acts chapter 2, starting at Verse 42. And they, well, who are the they? Well, the they are the 3,000 plus who got saved that day. 3,000 new believers coupled with the hundreds of already existing believers and the apostles that were there and those close followers of Christ, those disciples, not disciples capital D, the 12, but true followers of Christ, all Christians everywhere who truly follow Christ are disciples. And so that group of people, what did they do next? They obeyed God. They waved for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes in power dynamic power the gospel begins to go out now in boldness people are saved what now well now there's a church so what happens they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and to the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles Distinguishing marks, okay, and some of these are are rather apparent. But let's try to dig a little bit beneath the surface. Not only what did they do then, and what did God cause in them then, but what is God doing in us, and what do we do now with these things? Some distinguishing marks. The first one is this. It says they devoted themselves. Okay, so before you fill in any blanks, I want you to just focus on the word devoted themselves to. Is there anything in your life right now that you could honestly say you are devoted to? Other things will give way, but this will not. When you're tired, you still will. If nobody else wants to, you're still going to. This is something that you're passionate about. This is something that you're committed to. This is something that you're not casual about. This is not something that you're not passive with. This is something that you're dedicated to. I am devoted to this. This thing I'm going to do. You understand the concept of devotion. Now, it's very different than most people's understanding. Or relationship with God, the Bible, prayer life, or the church. We might participate, we might be passive recipients of, uh, we might give occasional attention to, uh, we might be periodic in our efforts at, but how often or how many of us could say, man, this I will do? They devoted themselves to teaching. There's a serious commitment here in the early church to teaching and learning. To teaching and learning. You're talking about a group of people who couldn't get enough of this. When the apostles began to preach and teach, they wanted this. They wanted to hear this. And they knew that this was central to what they were about. So much so that in just a few chapters, we're going to get to chapter 6, and the church is just blowing up with people. And now it's becoming cross-cultural. It's becoming multi-ethnic. Now it's drawing in people just like the prophets foretold from different tongues and tribes and nations, and now you've got ethnic Jews, and you've got ethnic Greeks, and, which is a broad term for all sorts of people who are not Jewish, all coming together. And now there's conflict, and there's issues, and there's strategic challenges, and there are you know, so many just moving parts that they've got to recognize. And what did they say in the early church? Well, hold up, we've got to fix this issue. Why? So that we can keep being focused on, hearing from, and responding to. Teaching of the Word and prayer. We've got to maintain that as our focus. They're committed to this. If a church doesn't teach, it's not a church. Now, it can do a lot of things. It can be a benefit to its community. It can be a a center of generosity. It can be a place where people really enjoy the relationships they make there, the uh, connections and networking that happen there. It, It can be a place that they love having their kids and they think it's good for them morally or ethically, all those things. But if a church is not teaching, it's not really a church. Why? It has always been, always been God's plan, God's intention, God's instrument for His church, both to convict, then to create, and then to conform His people through the Word. This is what He does. The Word is what brings us to an understanding of our need for God, our own sinfulness, our own insufficiencies, our deficits but also our impending judgment it's the word that brings conviction it's the word then that when responded to creates us into god's people makes us into his people and then as we study learn as we do what it says we're conformed by the word this is what the scripture says let me give you an example of just a just many that are in the new testament paul the apostle says romans one16 i'm not ashamed of the gospel the gospel that peter preached on that day it didn't change There was not a Jesus gospel, a Peter gospel, and a Paul gospel. That same gospel, he says, I'm not ashamed of it. Why? It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So that begs the next question. How will people believe this gospel? If the gospel is the power of God that will save people who will believe in it, how will they believe in it? Well, Romans 10 addresses that, right? Faith, belief, allegiance to God, that comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. If we believe that we have the, the power, I, I have a, a, a pastor friend who sends me a text message on Sunday mornings, every Sunday. I'm, many of you will know him, Johnny Fain, he was pastor at First Baptist. He sends me a text message, and other pastors too, I'm praying for you. And one of the things he sent this morning, he says, remember that God has given us the keys to the kingdom. That's what Jesus said to the disciples, i have given you the keys to the kingdom. That key is the gospel, it's a gospel key. We unlock it. We unlock heaven for those by the preaching of the gospel. So it's through hearing they'll respond. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. We thank God constantly for this, that not only did you hear it, but when you received it, you accepted it. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. Here's the word of God, able to save. Here's the word of God proclaimed. And when you hear it proclaimed, you receive it knowing that it comes from God. Hebrews 4, chapter 12, I mean, chapter 4, verse 12 tells us the kind of word it is, the word of God's living, and it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who must, to whom we must give an account. It's the power of the word, the cutting, sharping, sharp, dividing word. This is a word that we preach. James one eighteen says this, Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be firstfruits of his creatures. So the command to us in James one twenty one is this, So receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. You see, the early church understood this, which the modern church has to also understand. When we hear the word of God, we are hearing from God. so much nonsense afoot in modern christianity i want to hear i want to hear a word from god people want a personal message a private message a unique message a special message you want to hear god speak open up the bible and read it when the early church heard the word of god they received that knowing this is god speaking to them through his word as I was looking at my old notes towards the end of the week, I made myself a note, though. It's not, it's not good preachers that build the church. Some churches think that. If we can get a good preacher, um, we can build a church around that person. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll draw people, and you know, a good preacher, and people come, and the church grows, and we build a church. Good preachers don't build churches. The Word of God builds churches. And I want to make this clear as I can from history, okay? I know we have a preference for people who speak in a certain way or maybe they don't stutter or stammer who are more entertaining or whatever it may be. But it hasn't always been that way. When you think of peaks in American religious life, spiritual life, you can't get any higher than the Great Awakening. You can't. In the Great Awakening, they estimated that in New England, about 5% of the whole population came to Christ, whatever that population was. I mean, that was just huge. And when you think of the Great Awakening, you can't think of a figure that God used more during that period of time and, and really since than Jonathan Edwards. And when you think of Jonathan Edwards, you can't think of a sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached that's more famous, more influential than Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, this is what you may or may not know about Jonathan Edwards Jonathan Edwards was a scholar, and most of his ministry time was actually spent in his study. And when Jonathan Edwards crafted sermons, he wrote them out word for word. I'm not that smart, nor am I that disciplined. And he would write these sermons out word for word. Jonathan Edwards was also very nearsighted. And so when Jonathan Edwards delivered his sermons, he read them with the notes very close to his nose. And they say he really rarely, if ever, even looked up during the readings of his sermon. In fact, you can go onto a website called sermonaudio.com if you're so inclined, and you can listen to a number of different people reading verbatim Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, I will tell you in advance, for those of you who are nerd enough to do, I mean, interested enough to do this, um, one character tries to read it in sort of modern ways, trying to make it all dramatic and everything, and he sounds ridiculous. Everyone else just reads it. And it sounds like someone would be reading from a theology textbook. But midway through this sermon, as Jonathan Edwards was delivering sinners in the hands of an angry God, something began to happen in that congregation of people. You start first hearing the sniffling and the heavy breathing, but before long, people were breaking out in tears and wailing, so much so that he was not able to finish the sermon. And the different pastors that were there present Began to de- disperse themselves among the congregation, praying with people in clusters, and groups, and clumps, and many people were saved that day. But it wasn't eloquence. It-, it wasn't the entertainment factor. It was the sheer word of truth that was given that day. But I think a lot of people today prefer entertainment than a real encounter with God, because real encounters with God can be scary. They can be humbling. They can be threatening to what we do and how we think and how we act and how we feel. So we'd rather feel good about the experience. I think sometimes we would prefer, if we're honest, superficial, even silly. I listen to sermons sometimes, and it's just silliness. I mean, I'm a funny guy. You may not know it. You may not even <laughs> believe me. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> but we'd rather, we'd rather that than serious or soul-searching because we don't want to be made to feel that way. We don't want to go that deep. People in general would rather be affirmed. They want what they're doing to be condoned. They're not looking for someone to convict them or correct them. And preachers, that's on us because we want to stand at that door and, and be told what a great sermon that was, not how bad you made me feel. Or how angry that made me. Or I don't think I'm coming back here again. You know, we want laughs, affirmation. We don't want tears. We want confrontation with you. And we're often guilty of this. We pander when we preach because we already know your preferences and we know your politics. And I know what you'll like and what you'll say amen to or what you'll agree with me or tell me that was great or that was the best you ever heard. And, And no disrespect, but over time you become cynical. If someone ever tells me that that's the best sermon I ever heard on that passage of Scripture, usually I think, so you finally found someone who said what you already believed. Somebody who already agreed with you. Sometimes we we don't preach the hard truths because we, deep down inside, fear man's response than God's judgment. We spent a few days this week, and you can be in prayer about this, We spent a few days this weekend a lot of time with a potential worship pastor candidate. And most of the questions were going that direction from from us to him. And a few came back. One particular one challenged me and I thought it was an insightful question. He asked me, he said, when you preach, are there any things, any subjects that you won't preach on? Anything that you avoid? And I had to think about it a little bit. And to be honest, before God and him? No. No. I'm not seeking out controversy. I'm not going to skip things. I'm not going to bypass what the scripture says. um, Because ultimately, I have to fear standing before God. He's the one that Hebrews 13 says I've got to give an account to. But when it comes to preaching, the word of God's got to be central. It's really not the quality of presentation. It's the depth of truth. Is what we're saying true? Does it does it match what the apostles would have said? Does it match the intent that the Spirit gave? Does it lead us towards God and godliness? And that's why one of your great responsibilities in the church is to be discerning about what you hear, but to always be praying that what we hear, whether it's in your small group or whether it's in your D group or whether it's in Sunday morning in our big group, that it is from God's Word and it's true to God's Word because it doesn't take long for those things to slip. It doesn't take long. So we have to give faithful attention to it. So they were committed to this. They were devoted to it. Second thing is this. They demonstrated a legitimate, and, and I use that word intentionally, I wasn't just looking for adjectives here, but there's a legitimate commitment to relationships and community displayed in the early church. Now, you know, we can branch out into some silly debates that are more tainted by our modern political ideas than are truly biblical. You know, certainly there have been those who have tried to espouse some bizarre versions of communal living or communism even from this passage. This goes much deeper than that. This is not the apostles developing a political system or a political model. In fact, you know one of the great flaws with any political model is this, to think that we can sub out human responsibility, to, to think that we can pay someone to do that, right? that, that. That becomes someone else's responsibility. Well, I pay them to do that. You know, I I remember when we were doing the after school, I was mentoring in after school or mentoring matters a few years back and I was talking to one of the kids and we were trying to explain, I don't even know how the subject came up, we were trying to explain in very loose terms just how government works, society works. And I said, well, like that big, big pothole in the street. You have any potholes on your street where you live? Oh yeah, I got a big pothole. You know, it's always full of water, blah, 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 big pothole. I said, well, who, who fixes that pothole? This is a few years back. Well, President Trump does. Well, how does he pay for it? Well, because he's rich. I said, no, 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 this is not how this works. And we, so, but trying to explain taxes and municipal government and all those things, I don't even understand it, so I couldn't explain it. Theoretically, we pay for it. I don't know why it's not fixed. But you can't sub these things out. You can't subcontract community, right? You, you can't do that. In the early church, if community was going to ha- happen, it was going to be because the people loved each other and they were connected to each other and they cared about each other. They didn't parse that out to somebody else. They didn't, they didn't outsource their generosity. Now, I'm not railing against things that are helpful and beneficial. I'm glad, for instance, that we have something called a family benevolence fund here. You know, I'm glad that when one of our people is in crisis... That because people have been generous and we collaborate, we can help meet those needs. And and I'm glad we have that. But if that's all that we have, that's not faithful to the original model. If you know people that have needs, what do you do as a brother and sister with someone who has needs? You meet them. And what's pretty clear, I think, and it's, it's implicit, I get, not explicit in the text. But when it says things like, you know, when they sold the things that they had so they could meet the needs of the other, you get the point, don't you? Some had more than they needed. They had superfluous things, excessive things. Some had less than they needed to meet basic needs. And people recognized that I wouldn't let that happen in my family. Why would I let that happen in my family? Because they understood what church was. So they genuinely cared for each other by sharing the things that they had. We're in this together. We don't just go to the same church, we don't just watch the same programming. We don't just listen to the same teaching. We don't just go to that same campus, participate in those same activities. We are the same people. And because we're together, nobody there struggled to meet their basic needs. And and how do you know this? How do you know that no one struggled to meet their basic needs? Well, turn over to Acts chapter 4. If you flip just a few pages, you go to Acts chapter 4, looking at verse 32, and look what you find. Here's a description of all this as it plays out. Full number of those who believed were one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power, the whole the, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's why it was such a big deal when Ananias and Sapphira lied. It wasn't just lying. It was a sin against the community. It was a sin against the heart of the community. What sort of people are we? What sort of people does God want us to be? And So they were were passionate about that. But again, it's great that we have systems to help us be efficient. And I get when things start to get larger, they get to be more difficult. Even in Acts chapter 6, they had to... Establish an office called deacons to serve the needs of the people so the ministry of the church could continue. I get that. But when we sub that out to somebody else, when I get a call or a text or a face to face, Pastor so and so is going through a really hard time. You need to go see them. Maybe I do. But so do you. Do you know so and so is sick in the hospital and no one's been to see them? Well, that's a shame. Because you do know, because you just told me. And they belong to you too. And you belong to them. And it's not that I don't, but it's that you also do too. It's not one or the other. Was anybody from the life group called so and so? I don't know. Have you? Have you reached out to them? Well, you know so and so lost his job, right? Is the church doing anything for them? Who? Lost what? No, I haven't heard of it. Yeah, he got fired two months ago. Why hasn't the church done anything? You tell me. You tell me. Do you have anything that you could share? Could you get the people together in your small group that knows them? Could you meet those needs? Because that's what church is. That's what the church does. It's people who care enough about each other that understand when we talk about church, we're not talking about a program or an event or a place, an activity. We're talking about a people. And so this is what they do. And so what happens here in Acts chapter 2, which we see developed in Acts chapter 4 and runs throughout the book, is a whole countercultural community is being established. And what does that cultural, counter-cultural community do? It displays the gospel. It says to people who aren't listening to the message of salvation yet, who don't know about the doctrine of God much yet, who don't know why you do what you do yet, they see you and they see you in action, and they say, man, that is not like us. That's not like a, a world that's bent on competition. That's not like a world that's bent on how much can I gain, even at the expense of someone else. This is the work of God. Here's a third. They displayed a passionate commitment to worship. Worship that's a natural outflowing. Worship that's a rational response. Worship that's a a recognition of what Christ has done for me and in gratitude, I'm going to react to it. I'm going to be forever reacting to what God has done for me. The revelation of the word being taught to me deserves a response of worship from me. The remembrance of Christ's sacrifice and resurrection and the promise of his return creates a reaction in me and a response from me of worship. The presence of the Holy Spirit in me that's sanctifying me and changing me from the inside out, draws me to worship, enables me to worship, empowers that worship. All these things are happening. So we see a couple of elements here, very specifically. It says in, in verse it says in verse 42, "Not only did they devote themselves to the teaching and the fellowship, but the breaking of bread and prayers. Now, I know there's some debate, and you can read some of these different opinions and different commentaries and things. Are we talking about just meals? You know, they they ate meals together, or are we talking about something more spiritual? And the answer, while somewhat simple, is not simplistic, okay? First of all, it's not just eating. It's really just not. In in fact, when I was asking some of you earlier, what are you really devoted to? Um, Some of us could have honestly answered, I know what I'm devoted to, food. I'm devoted to it. I love it. But really, for most of us, we don't have to devote ourselves to do that. We're just going to do it. In fact, getting together to eat probably is the easiest thing we can do. Would you agree? It's probably the easiest thing we could do. Um, If we set out 50 boxes of donuts on Easter Sunday, they'll get eaten. If we have a meal on a Wednesday night, it gets consumed. If we did a special fellowship and wanted to make sure that you came, we'd serve good food, right? It's, It's really more of a hook to get you to come than it is some key component of fellowship. But casseroles don't community make, right? And when we talk about fellowship, that's not an event that you can orchestrate in a room that you simply dub the fellowship center. I've always hated the term, by the way, and this is just personal, so bear with me because I get the right. I've been here 10 years now, I can say whatever I want. Um, <laughs> I loathe the term for churches where they worship called worship centers. I don't want you to come to a worship center. I want you to be part of a church. And as a church, we gather. Now, we need a place to gather because that's just functional. But we're not a worship center. You know, We're a church. We're a church family. And the fellowship center, it might be conducive to gatherings, but real fellowship is community. The Greek word, as many of you will probably know, is koinonia. Fellowship is a means to koinonia. It's not the definition of koinonia. Because koinonia runs deeper than that. Koinonia is the intersection of people's lives. People who know each other, are committed to one another, live life around and with one another. Fellowship is one of the fruits of that. And when it comes to breaking bread, there's more than just meals. There's a spiritual element here that we have called Communion. But how many of you know, at least to some degree, and for time's sake, I won't go super deep into this, but how many of you know that the way that we do Lord's Supper is probably not exactly how they did it back then? How many of you have a general sense of that? How many have a general sense that back then they didn't have these little crackers (laughs) and they didn't have cups of which you might have about a 10 to 15% chance of having one that's fermented? (laughs) Someone asked me the other day, the honest question, so are we using real wine in these now? I said, what? No, are we using real wine? I had real wine in my communion cup the other day. (laughs) I said, no, maybe you had an old batch. (laughs) You know, maybe it wasn't quite sealed. But you remember when I said earlier, we've got things in our homes that we keep, but they don't really mean much anymore. They They don't do anything. I fear... That we have something that we hold in our hands, that we keep, but it doesn't do anything. Because see, in the early church, yes, they would get together for a meal. But they had a Lord's Supper meal. And how do we know this? Because we see challenges to the early church, like in 1 Corinthians, of people that were gluttonous. They're eating too much. Well, it wasn't from these. And some who were getting drunk there, and it wasn't from this. This. Now, the people would come together for a real meal, but in the end, they began to honor, as Jesus said "Do do this to remember me. When you come together, do this to remember me. And he gave them that day, that which was a Passover meal. As they had this meal together, then they remembered through the breaking of the bread, Jesus who gave himself for us. As they drank that last cup from the meal, remembering Jesus' blood that was shed for us, and the final cup that we'll drink in his presence forever, that cup that we'll drink at the great wedding supper of the Lamb. They would do these things. They would remember, and they would celebrate, and they would honor. But it, it had meaning. You see, because when they share that meal with one another, they knew these things. They knew this person I'm sharing this meal with, that's my brother, that's my sister. They're believers too. And I'm endorsing them. I'm acknowledging them. I'm encouraging them. There's a recognition here that as this is being shared, that we have something in common that is so deep that our world doesn't even get. You see, the world might look at us on a Sunday morning and say, I know why those guys get together. It's obvious. They're socially conservative, politically conservative, middle class, and mostly white. It's no wonder they get together. There are lots of groups that do that. It'd be like going to the soccer field. I know why they get together. They're parents. They have young kids. They're losing their minds at home. And they need an outlet. And maybe a few like soccer. But really, it doesn't matter, does it? Parents, honestly, it doesn't matter. You don't love soccer. They could be kicking around porcupines out there. (laughs) You just can't stay at home all the time. Is there something bigger? Is there something that says, I know you, I love you. And not only do I know and love you and know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ, but if something were to happen to you spiritually, I'm going to be there for you because I care about you too much to watch you slip away. And when your faith begins to wane, you need to know I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you walk away from this family. I'm I'm not going to watch you fall into sin. I'm not going to watch you fall into unbelief. And when you're struggling, I'm not going to let the hurts of this world drag you down, make you wonder about the goodness of God. Because I care for you and love you, and I'm involved with you because I know you. And this is what they were doing. When they gathered together around this, a meal, a meal, it also led to a communion. They remain anchored in the gospel. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done. This is who we are because of Jesus. Doesn't matter if you're Greek or Jew, male or female, rich or poor, young or old. Doesn't matter the tone of your skin. Doesn't matter your family name or your history. In Christ, this is who we are. And they're encouraged by that. I'm forgiven. I'm part of a family. I have a king. I have an eternal future guaranteed by him. This is what this means. It says they also dedicated themselves to the prayers. You're going to be hearing us talk a lot more about prayers through the book of Acts. Prayer, again, was not passive, it was not just reactionary. It was not occasional. It was not superficial. It was something they were devoted to because they knew the lifeblood of the church came through praying. And every promise that God made was enacted through praying. Because God told them he would do certain things, they prayed for them. That didn't mean they didn't pray for them. That drove them to pray for them. Because they saw God at work by his spirit doing miraculous things, they prayed that those things would happen. Because they saw people being saved, they prayed that people would be saved. And through prayer, they demonstrate their dependence on Jesus. Remember, that's the heart of the ascension. Our king is now ascended. He sits at the right hand of the Father where he hears us. He intercedes for us, as the author of Hebrews says. He's ever interceding. His ascension is what drives my praying because he's there and he's sitting on the throne. He can do something with it. He's accessible to us. This is my fidelity to King Jesus. I will be faithful to the king. I will pray. And when they prayed, what happened? You're going to see it again and again in Acts. They received his blessings. They experienced his power because they sought it. They prayed for it. They needed it. They got it. We're going to do something just a bit different. I'm going to ask our deacons. They're going to go ahead and begin serving you one of these remembrances of a remembrance. Let's call it that. In just a moment, you're going to receive one of these little cups. And I just want to ask you to do this. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, take one. If you're not, just let that pass. But just watch for a moment and just listen and hear. okay? I'm not saying you're less than or you're not welcomed here. But for the sake of what this means, I just want you to just let it pass. Or maybe even hold one in your hand and consider the symbolism in it. When I was a young pastor, younger, as I still am, but one of the things someone gave me very early on in ministry was, a well, I didn't know what it was when I got it until I opened it. It was a little kit. It was a little kit that was a mobile Lord's Supper kit. You know, a little bottle of juice and a little thing for you put the crackers in and had a couple of little cups and and I guess they sold those at like LifeWay and Christian bookstores and things. This is a mobile communion kit, so that if I visit someone who's sick in the hospital, or I go visit someone in their home, and they say, "May I have communion?" I could, I could do this with them. And I did that some because I thought that's what you're supposed to do. I thought that's what pastors did, know, we give communion when people want it. And over time, I begin to realize that's much more akin to a faith that I don't embrace, and tradition that's not mine, and a theology that doesn't fit. And I'm not a priest. And your relationship with the Lord is not private. And it's not just about you. And so, if you ask me, will you come to my house and give me communion? No. I will gather with you with other believers and share it. Because communion is about community. It's about the body of Christ together. It's about the mutual recognition that this person that I'm sitting beside, that I just passed that tray to, that I'm sharing this cup with and this bread with, they are a believer like me. That's my family and I care about them. I love them. I'm invested in them. I want them to succeed. I I want them to cross the finish line with me. When we went through that, whatever you want to call it, of COVID, and we had that first encounter with, now we're going to do Lord's Supper. What do we do with those watching online? And have some serious theological questions with, one, not knowing who's taking communion, and this is an affirmation of our common faith, but it's also an affirmation of one another having that faith. What do we do with people at home? And I remember an acquaintance of mine watching a service online that made me more than cringe. It honestly made me angry. He was doing Lord's Supper online with his people, and he said, hey, just go grab whatever you got. You know, a cracker, a cookie, root beer from the fridge, and let's do community together. That's not what this is. This is not your private moment in a public gathering with God. doesn't mean it's not personal to you. There's a lot more to it than that. This is what makes us, a, this is what symbolizes that which makes us a family, a real body, a church. Not just a thing that we do or a place that we go, but a people that we are. That because of the blood of Christ, we now have been made family. We've been redeemed by the same blood. Because of the body of Christ, we now get to be a, a body we, we really are a body, and we're all connected to one another in a way that God's going to hold us accountable to. So I want you to do this just for a moment. So instead of just, just you pondering your relationship with God privately, I want you, if you're with your family, do it with them. If you're by yourself, get with a few people around you. And I want you to spend just a moment, if you don't know their names, find out right now. Do it right now. Get in a little group. Know who that person is, those people around you. If you're sitting beside a guest or somebody you've never met, find out who that is right now. Find out who that brother or sister in the church is sitting near you right now. Okay, that's enough of that. And by the way, you didn't just have fellowship with one another. You just introduce yourself. Okay, now you know, I want you to do this. Just quietly, as Gail's going to play, I want you to do this. I want you to pray by name for those people that are sitting around you. Pray that they'd be faithful to Christ. Pray that they'd be filled with His Holy Spirit. Pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in them richly. Pray that they would grow up in all things who is the head Christ. Pray that they would be all that God wants them to be, together with you and with this church. And let's pray for one another for a few moments. And when you've done that, that little group that you're in, that little cluster, you share that with them together. You share that bit of Lord's Supper with them together. And then we're going to sing a song. So let's do that right now. Be seated just for a moment. I want to give you the conclusion of the thing. What happens when you do this? What happens? Well, one, you can't, you can't escape the notice of this. People can't ignore it. And in that day, they did just as they would today if that sort of church was happening, the world around them took notice. Um, People were in awe of that. This is amazing. What created favor with them? I'll tell you what didn't. What didn't create favor with them was the content of the sermons preached. Because the leaders of the church were about to be imprisoned for that. All of the church was about to be persecuted for that. What was it that caused them to have favor? Family? Community? Love? Turns out Jesus was right after all when he said, By this will all men know that you're my disciples because you love one another. Well, that's not philosophical, ideological, spiritual. That's boots on the ground, food in the pantry, helping out your neighbor, everyday love. They also experienced God's favor. I believe God was well-pleased. And because they trusted him and prayed, and because they took their hands off of things and asked him to provide, God was able to bless them. And they were obedient. God never blesses disobedience ever. Never blesses faithlessness. ever. Never blesses sinfulness, ever. But he does bless obedience and faithfulness. In all this, God was glorified. Did miraculous things. We're going to see some stories that are just mind-boggling. They all point to God. They don't elevate men, they elevate God. And, And God was glorified in all this. You couldn't help but notice God. And a lot of people were saved. We noticed at Pentecost, 3,000 on one day. But I love the normalcy of salvation that took place after Pentecost. The normalcy. The normalcy of their gathering. Day by day, they gathered in the temple courts. Day by day. They got together because that's who they were. They were a people who gathered. They were a family who gathered. You didn't have to force it. It wasn't their tradition wasn't the the mandate. They got together because that's what God's people do. They gather. They knew that you can't download Christianity. They knew that the church wasn't just a a resource for them where they could receive religious goods and services. They knew that the reality of Christian life and development only happens person to person, face to face, life on life, where people are bouncing against and rubbing off on each other. they gathered. But people got saved day by day just became a normal thing. In the normal rhythms of life, of faithful living, people were coming to Christ. Why? Verse 47 says, The Lord added to their number day by day those being saved. God, who's faithful to his mission, God, who is sovereign over salvation, is adding day by day. You remember verse 37 last week? Peter gets up to preach. He gives a universal offer that all who would believe... Would come. Who responds to that call? Well, verse 37 says it The promises for you, for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. See, as they were faithful to do their part, and they prayed, and they gathered, and they lived in such a way that honored him, they could count on God being faithful to his. As they preached boldly, God moved powerfully. As they prayed consistently, God glorified himself. As they gathered and loved one another, God added to their number day by day. So what's your place in a church like that? Where do you fit there? I leave that open-ended for you to search out with the Lord and what God would have you to do based on what you've heard. A little while ago, I asked those of you who are not yet Christians, with all due respect, just to either hold that cup and think about it or let it pass and consider it. If you're not a Christian yet, man, I invite you into it. I invite you into more than just a personal faith. I invite you into a family. I invite you into an everlasting family. I invite you into a body where Christ is the head and you're going to become an integral part. I invite you into a, an army that has a king named Jesus. I invite you into a, a building, but it's not made of mortar. It's made of people. It's a spiritual building built by the hands of God. I invite you into a kingdom that's an everlasting one. Through repentance from sin, faith and belief, you become Christ. You become his, and that's his forever. If you don't know where you stand with God, I'll invite you to take a next step today. We have a little kiosk at the back. Consider it an invitation for you. A couple of our pastoral staff will be there. They'd love to talk to you about your next step, joining a church or becoming part of the church through faith in Christ, whatever that next step is. If something you heard today stirs you to some action and you want to know where do I point, direct that action, maybe that's a place to start and give us an opportunity to respond to you. There's also a way that you can communicate with us. It's in that bulletin that you have. There's a perforated edge. Write a prayer request, write a need, write a note, write a message. There are two boxes. You can drop them off as you go. But here's the thing. Let's be doers. Let's be doers of the word, not hearers only. Let's pray. And now, God, we who have been formed by your word, made your people through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus, supernaturally renewed, regenerated, given life by your spirit, who now dwells in us, we depart this place as ambassadors of the king. May we do it with gratitude. May we do it with confidence in our mission that you go before us and behind us and empower it all. May we do it with a deep, genuine love for one another and a commitment to this community. May we do it based on the foundation of truth, the apostles and the prophets that have been laid, and Lord, the confident assurance that you will prevail. Lord, add to our numbers daily. Make us a people that are worthy of having numbers added to. Make us a community that can receive those brand new infant believers and be part of that that progression all the way to the fullness of Christ. Make us a place that's compelling for this community and a people who are, that they see the love of Christ among us. Lord, may we be committed to your word to know it, to live it. May we be committed to your church and this community in it and all the people in it and finding our role and our place and our responsibility to it. May we be committed to worshiping you. Lord, be pleased with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.